Good morning. You can open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. And I have to say, I feel like we should be reading about the virgin birth or the manger or something. That's a, that's, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, this is great. I, you know, I think if, if, if it just been we're doing Christmas, you know, in September, that would be one thing. But when David Mapes says, I like singing Christmas songs, so we'll sing them. It's just, it lives just the best in me to, to, to razz him a little. But we'll stop. Um, <clears throat> we're, gonna, we're, we're going through the kings, and so I don't have sermons on every single king. And we've been going, you know, father to son to grandson. We're going to skip way ahead into the future for the nation of Judah. And today we're going to learn about King Manasseh. We're going to go through his life, and we're going to see some lessons in it. Now, Manasseh is way, way further into the future. So we were in the, around the 9 to 800s uh, B.C. era. Now we're in the 600s. So the northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped out in captivity. Hezekiah weathered uh, a great uh, storm, you could say, when a, a, an opposing nation came and Sennacherib had him like penned up like a bird and God delivered him. The angel of the Lord came down and killed the army. Uh, the army leader went back to his country. He survived. <coughs> Hezekiah had a really good overall kingship at the end. He had a little bit of a pride issue. And he dies and his son Manasseh takes the throne. So today we're going to read about Manasseh. We're going to start by reading the text. So jump with me in chapter 33, verse 1 of Second Chronicles. Manasseh <clears throat> was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up the altar for the Baals. He made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven, and then he served them. Verse 4 of Second Chronicles 33, he says, He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of Hinnom, in the, in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery and he consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of, it, foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed to your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and to the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. Verse 9. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we love you. 
Thank you, Lord, uh, for this text. Thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that the text today would work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, and that it would give us uh, a rebuke as we walk waywardly from you, but it would also give us hope. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I can't remember if I told this story. If I have, I'm sorry. I repeat stories sometimes. Um, but I, did I ever tell you about going to Peoria, Illinois? Have I told that yet? I don't think so. Okay. This is great. I am not uh, geographically smart. I don't know direction. So I have a friend who his father-in-law used to say, you could drop me in the center of a cornfield and I could tell you which way north is if I was blindfolded. He just knew directions. I am not that kind of guy. So I'm driving with my wife out to Michigan. I, we live here in Iowa. Michigan is a straight shot over and then slightly north when you get past the lake. And I missed a turn. And, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, it's a straight shot. There's no turns. Yes. <laughs> That's what you would think. So I-80 has this weird thing that around the Quad Cities, you have to get off of 80 to stay on I-80. And if you don't get off of 80, you end up on, like, I don't know, 70-something or 50, some dumb road that will take you to Peoria, Illinois. So I'm not geographically smart, I'm geographically challenged, and I'm having this wonderful talk with my wife. You know those, if you're married, you know that talk with your spouse where just it's wonderful and beautiful and amazing and you're connecting and you're just so close and oh, I'm so thankful I'm married to her. It's like 9.30, we should be getting close to Chicago, shouldn't we, honey? Peoria. Oh, that's Peoria. That's a suburb of Chicago, right? <laughs> I don't know. No, this is before phones and GPSs. I didn't have a GPS. We had an atlas, but it was in the trunk. And I think it's in the trunk. I'm, and it was, kind of, you know what, let's just, do we remember the atlas? Let's just stop at Walmart and we'll get another atlas. So going to Walmart, 10.30, Friday night at Peoria. It's really hopping, by the way. Really hopping place, you know. Football teams coming in, people, kids in groups, parents, I don't know. So we go in and we get to the checkout lane where the atlases are. Rand McNally atlas, pop that baby open. I'm looking at Chicago and I don't see anything and I go down and I go down and I go down and I go down. Two and a half hours south and there is Peoria, Illinois. So I realize as a, I mean, this is like our second year of marriage. I'm the pilot. My wife is not the co-pilot. I'll take care of this. Thank you very much. I had missed the signs. Probably multiple signs saying stay on I-80, and I had gone two and a half hours south when I shouldn't have. And so in a very unsanctified way, I tried to make up as much time as possible driving about 90. <laughs> 90. I think at one point I was at 95. You can go through a lot of gas when you drive that fast. It's also highly illegal. Thankfully, the Lord was gracious and didn't give me a ticket. Uh, I don't think yet, you know, my wife, I think she was just a little bit wanted to be quiet there and not bother me. Um, but my pride was so wounded, and I was not willing to humble myself and admit anything right away. Now, this is the thing. This is a trend. I miss signs, okay? There's a sign. I should pay attention. I'm not paying attention. I'm doing my thing. So this time, it's my wife and her sister and our niece. They're going to Michigan. And my dad and I are going on a father-son trip to Chicago to a Bible, con a Bible software conference. Very nerdy, but awesome. And so we, we go to Iowa City, and I drop my wife off with her sister because she's up north, and they come down and meet. And then me and dad, and we, we go, and they go, and we're on this, you know, we're on I-80. and They have an atlas because my wife insisted that I take the GPS. 
Well, my dad had his GPS, so we jokingly thought, we have two GPSs. There's no way we can get lost. <laughs> so I love, I love how much you trust me. You know me. So just for fun, we put both GPSs up on the, the window, and then we take a picture with our phone and text it to them and say, we're never getting lost or something like that. And then they send back a picture of the atlas, and you know, we're mocking them. And I am not joking. We almost missed our turn because we had the volume turned down, so we didn't hear the instructions. My wife still won't let me live this down. What does this have to do with Manasseh? We stopped at verse 9, but look at what verse 10 says. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. And so they probably thought they missed the message. They probably thought they had missed a sign just like I had missed a sign. And so because they were unwilling to listen to God, judgment will come on the nation. So today, um, we're going to see three elements here in the life of Manasseh that we should learn from. And this is going to be descriptive. So we're going to like outline Manasseh's life. And if we had to break it into three sections, and three is not a magic number, it just it neatly breaks up into three big events. The first uh, event or thing that happens in his life is that Manasseh rejects the Lord. So the first nine verses are Manasseh's rejection of God. The text will next record how he finally remembered the Lord, how he finally remembered the Lord, and then lastly, he will return to the Lord. So he rejects the Lord, then he remembers the Lord, and then he finally will return to the Lord. And so I would ask you today, you're not Manasseh, I'm not Manasseh. But I would ask you to ask the questions that Manasseh should have asked himself to yourself. Have you, in some way, chosen to reject God? Are you walking waywardly from him in an area in your life? And in a sense, you're not really paying attention to God? If so, then you, like Manasseh, should remember the Lord. And what does that look like to remember the Lord? That's what we want to talk about today, and it's very interesting uh, I think it's very similar to other places in Scripture. And then lastly, what should you do if you find that you've rejected God or forgotten him? You should return. This is ultimately a message of hope. Because Manasseh is honestly, I think, I, maybe I'm wrong, I think he is the worst king in Judah. So let's just catalog the worsts in his life, all right? So this is under Manasseh rejecting the Lord. Manasseh rejects the Lord. In 697, if you want details, I'm going to give you some. You don't need to write them down. But in 697, just around 700 B.C., Manasseh becomes king. And how old is he? Well, it says he's 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 55 years. That's one of the longest reigns of a Judean king, actually. I think it might be the longest. I think Isaiah or Josiah was 40, I want to say. Uh, maybe I'm getting that wrong. But this is, I think this is the longest. So the worst king in Judah reigns the longest. And he starts when he's 12 years old. What would it be like if you gained the presidency of the United States when you were 12 years old and then they let you keep it for 55 years? What would our country look like? <laughs> well, I'd, we'd probably have, if I had been that, I'd probably a lot of video games, no work, probably economic di di uh, upheaval very quickly. Um, it would be pretty bad. Now, my guess is when he was 12, he probably had some advisors. I'm not, I don't think he was probably solely ruling, but I think he would have had the rights to sole rulership at that point. But it says that he did evil on the side of the Lord. Now, we should pause really quick 
And we should say, who was his dad? His dad was Hezekiah. What did his dad go through? Well, his dad trusted the Lord in a dark time. He turned to God when a massive army was coming in an onslaught against him. He prayed and God gave a huge miracle. But at the end of Hezekiah's life, he got quite arrogant and he had to be humbled by God. And so he, he had a, a, the last couple years were not the best. So did that influence Manasseh? I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe Manasseh just really didn't have a taste for Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of Israel. Uh, but it says that he rejected it. Now, it, this isn't, I don't think this is a, you know, if you think about syncretism today or like the different religions that say all roads lead to God, I'm not really sure that's Manasseh. He really involves himself in a lot of idolatry, but it doesn't say anything about Judean worship, like Israel's worship. So I think he really does reject the Israel worship and he goes straight for the paganism. Let's look at that. Verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. The reason Israel was in the promised land was because of the judgment of God and the promise God made to Abraham. The people of the land, the Canaanites, were intensely wicked. They were pagan through and through, and they practiced abominable practices. And so part of God's judgment on them was handing the land over to Israel and wiping them. Supposed, they were supposed to have wiped them out. And the, the nations did such wicked actions that God didn't want them to survive at all. He wanted it completely wiped off the map, lest they would influence the people of Israel. As you think back to your history of Israel, that didn't happen. Uh, when Joshua went in, it wasn't a complete routing, a complete wiping out. There were pockets of Canaanites left, and those pockets kind of sat there as a temptation. And at times, the kings would give in, and at times, they would turn back. Manasseh was one of those kings who didn't just give in, but he fully adopted their practices. And so there's a note of irony here. God had wiped out the wicked pagans because they would not turn from their sins and here the Judean king comes to the throne and starts doing the very same things. In fact, he does them in more uh, amounts and frequency than the Canaanites did. So it's actually worse with the Judean king on the throne than it was when the Canaanites were in, in control. It says that this is the things that he did. Number one, in verse three, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. A high place was just a place to worship, often in a grove of trees or up on a little hill. They'd build a little vestibule or some stuff there for doing wicked practices. Hezekiah, one of the things he did was he wiped all that out. He cleaned up the countryside. He cleaned up the city. He got rid of the idolatry. But one of the first things Manasseh is noted for doing is that he rebuilt all of the pagan worship. This is not like he had a bad day and went to a, a, a wicked, evil temple one time. He brought these practices back to the land. Do you see the kind of enemy he is to God, even though he is God's king? He's doing exactly the opposite of what God wanted the king to do. It says that he also raised up altars for the Baals, and he made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. So Baal was a deity, supposed, of the Canaanites. He was either like a fertility god, or he was like a war god. So if you're going to war, you need to worship Baal. If you wanted your crops to come in well, you need to worship Baal. And his worship was a, uh, it was basically immorality is what we say in our audience. It was immorality. That's how you worship him. 
And so here he sets that up in the kingdom. He also it says that he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and he served them. So if you think today that people who check their horoscopes, hey, this star is here and it says if you're this, this will happen to you. And this star is here and it says this, it might happen to you. That's essentially what's going on here also. He looks up at the stars. Where are they at? What does that mean for me? What should I do? It was very pagan. And then in verse 4, it says he also built altars in the house of the Lord. So he didn't just do these sinful, uh, pagan, idolatrous practices just anywhere. He actually brought them into Judah's temple in Jerusalem. So he really is rejecting God when he does this. It's not like God is one among the many options he has and he's going to try them all out. He's wholesale rejected the worship of God at this point. This is not going well. Now the text goes on to make a big point that God had made this promise to Israel. It says, in the, He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. So God had promised the nation of Israel that this is where his name would be. And what did Manasseh do? He tarnished that name by bringing in idols. Verse 5, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. So here are all these astrological uh, signs and worship and altars, and he brings them into the Lord's house. In verse 6, he says he, he also caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's likely referring to a pagan god named Molech or Chemosh, depending on what area of the world you're from. Uh, Molech was a bronze statue with arms out. Okay, arms out like this, and the arms made like this ramp or a slide, and then here is his mouth. Okay, here's his face and his mouth, and you'd put your offering on the arms, and it would roll down through his mouth, and below him was a big burning fire, and so as a bronze statue, he would like glow brightly in the fire, and you'd put your offerings up there, and they would roll in. The problem is that the offerings were the same offerings that Planned Parenthood receives on a regular basis. And that's what he did with his sons. This is the king of Israel sacrificing his own children to pagan gods. Can you imagine the depth of wickedness that's going on in the country at this point? It says he practiced soothsaying and he used witchcraft and sorcery. Now that didn't go so well for Saul. I don't know why Manasseh thought it would go well for him. He says he consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And then verse 7 is like the really nasty cherry on the horrible ice cream sundae of sin. It says he even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, which God had said to David uh, and to Solomon his son, in this house in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law, the statutes, and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. He even made his own custom-built idol and then put it centrally in the temple. This is not a man who is shepherding God's people as the king of Israel ought to have done. This is not a man who is protecting them from the outside influence of sin. Rather, he's doing what a harlot would do. It says here, it says, verse 9, So Manasseh seduced Judah. 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He called out to them. He appealed to them. He made it look tantalizing and good. It's like a commercial for a Big Mac. The thing is huge and juicy, and you can almost smell it through the TV. And you go to McDonald's, and you order it, and it's like this big. Okay? And so if I took that Big Mac, and I held it up, and I said, do you want this? She'd be like, eh. But if I put up that enlarged photo of the, it's probably just clay that they've painted. I mean, it's probably not even real. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to get your mouth to water for the Big Mac. And in the same way that advertisers lure us in to buy their products, Manasseh lured the people down the path of sin. He was the exact opposite of what God's king should have been. It says now that he he seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. He actually made things worse. And verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. If you read the same account in the book of Kings, 2 Kings, I believe, it says that he sent prophets to Manasseh, and he sent uh, wise men to Manasseh, and they called him. They said, you need to repent, you need to turn. They called the people. They said, you can't do this, you need to turn. But no one would listen. And so here is a picture of Manasseh as he has completely rejected God. Now I want you to think for a moment, do you know someone? who has once uh, been in the Christian religion and they have rejected God and walked completely away. Don't say the name. Don't, I'm just asking you to think, or maybe is there somewhere in your life where you have rejected God's counsel and you've walked away? We have a temptation in life to kind of have Manassas. Here's this kid who I know, man, I was friends with him in high school and he's walked away. There's no hope. Or hey, here's this, a uh, child of mine who grew up and I thought they were a Christian and then they just walked away. It's been 30 years. There's no hope. Like we, we can look at people and write them off. And if anyone in the Bible is to be written off on the account of what they've done, Manasseh is the one to be written off. He's completely rejected God and walked away from him. So God calls him and God calls him and he sends prophets And he doesn't listen. And so God's judgment finally comes. So look in verse 11. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Okay, now, little history lesson, not a big one, just a little one. Okay, this happens after he's been king for 50 years. We're, we're guessing. We, like I'm a historian. The, the historians are guessing. So he goes on his life for about 50 years, and at the end of that 50 years, uh, there's this problem going on up in Assyria. So if this is uh, Judah, okay, here, we'll, we'll make a little map over here. This is Judah, over down to the like kind of side over here is Egypt. Up here is Israel, the 10 tribes that have left, and then way up north is Assyria. Well, Assyria had been conquering all over the place. And so what happens is if, a, if another nation conquers you, in this day and age, you became a vassal 
A vassal is like a servant nation. So think about it like this. Canada. Canada takes over the world. Okay? And they come down, they conquer America, and they conquer Mexico, and they conquer uh, all the other countries. And uh, so we're a vassal nation of Canada. And what that means is probably there's Canadian influence all over our country, but also we have to pay them massive amounts of money just to keep a good uh, uh, keep in good with them. So we're sending them all kinds of tax dollars. Our country is taking even more money from us to pay them off, and we're kind of like their servant nation. That's a vassal nation. Well, that was maybe is maybe Judah. There's a historical document. This is really fascinating where they've done research on Assyria and they found a king Manasseh named two times as a vassal nation. So the, the scholars think that maybe what happened is King Manasseh, to keep the peace, became a vassal of Assyria. He made a treaty with them, and he started paying them all this money not to wipe them out. So he became their vassal. Well, it would be kind of like if in America we decided we don't want this fight, and so we say we'll be a vassal of Canada. Okay, We'll, just, we'll, be, we'll be one of their countries. And so, you know, things are going, you know, sort of okay in that setup. But what happens up in Assyria is they start to have a civil war kind of thing go on. Ashurbanipal, I believe it's Ashurbanipal. Maybe I'm getting the wrong ruler here. Yeah, Ashurbanipal. He has a sort of a civil war happen where one of his brothers wants to take the throne from him. So for about four years, Assyria is tied up with this internal conflict. So it'd be like this. Canada has taken us over. And their prime minister is in control, but then the prime, minister br prime minister's brother stages an army coup, and he tries to take Canada away from his brother. And so for four years, they're just fighting in the country, brother against brother, and they're, who's going to win? We don't know. About this time, Mexico realizes, hey, we're having a civil war. They're not paying attention. Forget this. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be my own country again. I'm not paying them any more money. And so all these nations realize Assyria is weak. We're out. Forget this. And they stop paying tribute. They rebel. They try to become their own countries again. And now Assyria is losing vassal nations, and they're facing a civil war. Finally, Ashurbanipal squashes his brother and takes the power back. What do you think the first thing on Ashurbanipal's to-do list is after he wipes out his brother? That's right. Go get those nations who rebelled from him. Well, the nation way down there, Egypt, they had a big army. They had a lot of political influence. So Ashurbanipal isn't ready to take them over. But on the way to them is Judah, little Judah, tiny little nation, not a big army. And so Ashurbanipal sends people right down to wipe out Judah. Now, what may have happened is Manasseh might have thought, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be my own country again. But it may just have been that he was caught in the crossfire. And they suspected him of rebelling, and he didn't. Whichever way it is, Assyria sends an army to Israel, and Manasseh ends up getting taken away as a prisoner. They, it says that they took him away with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters in verse 11. Assyria was really good at killing you and keeping you alive at the same time. They were a really bad nation. So they could, they could do a lot of really torturous things to their enemies while keeping them alive for days. It was really, really bad. But one of the things they were known for 
was taking a hook and putting it through your lip and then dragging you wherever they wanted you to go. So I know. So as the king, it's very likely he got a lip ring and a chain on that lip ring. But this is the other thing. The other way they used to do it is, you know, under your chin where it's kind of soft, your jawbone goes out and comes back. They might have taken the hook and gone straight through and out the mouth. Now, I don't which way do you want it? Uh, do you want it through the chin or just through your lip? I mean, your lip, they'd probably rip your lip off if they pull too hard. Your chin, that's your chin. That's gross. I don't know which way it is. Both ways seems terrible. But think about it like this. You're Manasseh. For 50 years, you've done basically anything you want. You've oppressed people. You've taken their money. You're living this posh lifestyle with all the drugs and uh, wickedness that you want. And now someone comes puts you in handcuffs, does something horrible to you, and drags you from Israel all the way back to Assyria. That's what happened to Manasseh. They take him to Assyria, and they throw him in a prison cell, a deep, dark, dank prison cell, and there he sits, and he probably rotted there for about a year. And during that time, something happened. And this is where I think there is a message of hope. Manasseh remembered the Lord. Look at what it says, verse 12. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him. Please, for a moment, reflect on how unlikely this is. For 50 years, he's worshipped Baal. He's prayed to Molech. He sought the wisdom of the, astrologer, the astrological deities. He has probably made an Asherah, uh, an Asherah pole. He's probably worshipped all kinds of pagan deities. He's probably prayed to them. He's asked them to help him. He's called out to them. And now when he's in a prison, who does he call on? He calls on Jehovah. The God of Israel, who hasn't been worshipped in the country he's been in control of for 50 years, why did he do that? There's something that had to happen in his life that that could take place. And what I would say is that when he was a young boy, when he was before he was 12 years old, at some point, someone taught him the truth. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was some servant in the kingdom. Maybe it was some prophet, priest, king. I don't know who it was. But someone taught him the truth. He rejected the truth. But when life got really hard, he knew, I need to turn back to God. Now, anyone in his life would have said, 50 years? Why would he turn to Jehovah? He's been worshiping Baal and Molech and all them. But 50, it took 50 years and a ring through his lip dragging him to Assyria for him to wake up and remember the Lord. Do we ever write people off in our lives, just write them off as lost causes? Oh yeah, that person went to church when they were little, but they're, they're, there's no way that person's getting saved. I would go witness to that person, but I know they wouldn't listen because they've been walking apart from God for years. But look at Manasseh. Is there any king that's been more wicked than him? 
Is there any person who's done more evil in this nation than him? Is there anyone more unlikely to remember the Lord than Manasseh? And yet, he remembered God in his old age. You know, Solomon, there's a little bit of a parallel to Solomon. Growing up, he knew the truth, and then he lived for his own pleasures for years, and then in the end, he realized, you know what, that was not the right way. So here at the, at the end, in the dark prison, he calls out to God. Now, we all know God is a God of forgiveness. So, of course, God will forgive him, but he's not going to let him go back and be a king again, right? Look at what happens. Verse 12, now when the affliction was great, he implored the Lord to his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him, and he, the Lord, received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem, his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now, I think he knew that already. But I think when it says he knew, he knew it experientially. He knew it because he experienced it. He knew it because he saw God act. And he was king in Israel, so he had a whole different list of rules that he had to follow that we don't today. But I think the principle stands. I think that if we would turn from our sin, if we would humble ourselves, God will forgive us. If he would be willing to forgive Manasseh, would he not be willing to forgive someone different who's done less sin and wickedness? I mean, Manasseh is like the worst offender possible. God's willing to forgive him. So think of the person in your life who's walked away from God. And remember, don't write them off. We don't know what God will do to uh, to be used in their life to draw them to think back to who God is. Now, Manasseh does the right thing here, and I think he's an example for us. He realizes that he's sinned. He's realized he's been wrong. He humbled himself greatly, which says he must have been very, very arrogant. And then he turns and goes back to living the way he knows he ought to. So he rejected the Lord. Then he remembered the Lord. Now he is returning to the Lord. So look in verse 14. He begins to finally act like a Judean king. He finally decides to dust out that job description God made in the Bible and start doing his job as king. Verse 14, it says, After this, he built a wall outside the city of David from on the west side of the Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance to Fishgate, and he enclosed the offal and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. Do you know what your job was as king? It was to protect the land. It was to guide the army. It was to take care of things. What had he not been doing? He'd been paying off Assyria and doing what he wanted, but now he's, he's going to do what God wants. So he fortifies the city. He's probably slightly scared of Assyria, too, at this point. But I think he's actually being a king. He's doing what God commanded the king to do. So he renews his obedience here. Verse 15, he took away all the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. That'd be the one he built. And all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. So what is he doing here? He is removing the sin in the land. Did you notice? He renews obedience. He removes sin. Have we heard that before? That is the pattern that the kings continue to follow. They have to remove sin, and they have to renew obedience. He's doing that. Verse 16, he also repaired the altar of the Lord God. He sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. 
So he removes the sin from the nation and he renews their obedience to the Lord. It is the same pattern we see over and over again when kings realize they're sinning and turn back to the Lord. And you know what? It's the same pattern we see in the New Testament. Put off those old practices and put on those practices of the new life in Christ. Now, this is, I'm not saying that's what's going on here, but the principle is the same. If you want to follow the Lord, you have to remove the sin from your life. And if you want to follow the Lord, you have to pursue him and renew the obedience to him. And that's what Manasseh does. And the most unlikely of persons, for 50 years he walked away from God. For 50 years he rejected him. For 50 years he was involved in massive amounts of idolatry. And then when God judged him, he got his attention, he turned, he removed the sin, and he renewed his obedience. And I believe that's a pattern for us in our life. Now it goes on to, it's a sad little note here in verse 17. It says, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So it's admirable. The people, at least they get the God right, but they are unwilling to follow the way the Old Testament commanded them to only sacrifice at the temple. That's still, that's like halfway good, right? That's halfway good. But I think that speaks to the fact that when you lead people down the path of sin, it can be hard for them to turn back, and you bear some responsibility for that. So here Manasseh tries to do the right thing, but it might take those people a bit of time before they see it the way he does also. So then here's the, state, here's the, here's the rest of his life. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also, his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass and the sites where he built the high places and set up the wooden images and the carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Now, one last little note there. Ammon, uh, it's possible that's connected to some sort of an Egyptian deity. And so it looks like his son had adopted the paganism as much as dad did. But when dad turns and decides it's time to follow the Lord and I, I need to quit this sin, the son doesn't necessarily follow him. So if you read his account following after this, his son doesn't have a stellar record. And his son basically persists in those sins that Manasseh had lived in for the better part of a half century of his life. So what do we do about this? You know, I think of a lot of people who become convicted of a sin in their life. It happens to me, it's happening to you, it has happened to you. And so what do we do? We know we're supposed to admit we're wrong, and we know we're supposed to clear that sin out of our life, but what else do we do? The consistent testimony of the kings is that you rid your life of the evil and the sin, and then you begin to renew your obedience to God. I think we usually are aware of this. We're convicted, we're embarrassed, we feel ashamed, there's sin, we know we need to quit. And when we've quit or tried to quit, we get kind of content. We're thankful, yeah, okay, that, that's good. But are we turning in obedience the way God wants us to live? You know, all of these kings had responsibilities they had been disobeying. And when they ousted the sin in their life, they went back and began to say, what is it God wants me to do and how ought I live? 
what is it that God is asking us to do and how ought we live? I think of the Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all things, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So are we going out and are we sharing the gospel? And are we here among ourselves discipling one another to be better obeyers and followers of the Lord? Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the will of God is that you keep yourself pure from immorality. Are we seeking to obey that? Uh, There's plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about knowing the scriptures well so that we'll keep us from sin. Are you obeying? Are you digging into this book on your own regularly as a habit? Are you doing that? We need to get rid of the sin, but if we're not obeying, we're only doing half of the equation as we're seeing here. So let me know the first thing I think we can think of. The second thing is, I really think the testimony of Yahweh or of Manasseh calling on God in the prison is important to us. I'm going to speak specifically to those of you who, who work in the children's ministries here at this church. Number one, bless you. Bless you. Children ministry can be challenging. I do it on my I do it at my church. And sometimes you're working with these young kids and you feel like all you're doing is teaching them to sit still and there's nothing else going in their head. Okay? They just aren't getting it. And you you say it, you say it, and they don't get it, you know. Uh, you're in Sunday school, okay, this is fluffy and it's gray and it has a tail and it eats nuts. What is it? Jesus. No, that's not Jesus. You know, they're in Sunday school, so they think that's, and then when you're out of Sunday school, hey, who, who is it that died on the cross? I don't know. Who? You know, and you're, you just wonder, is what I'm doing to serve the Lord, is it really matter? Is it really helping? These kids are not listening to you. They're throwing candy. They're doing all this stuff. You're just trying to help them. Is it really matter? I would urge you to be faithful because you don't know how God will use that in their lives later on. I worked with a guy at a ministry, and he was one of those uh, memorizers in Awana. They had Awana, and he was just really good at memorizing. And he had, like, I don't know what that works like, but whoever is, like, the top memorizer each year, he was, like, one of those. Had it all memorized. Walked away from the Lord. Didn't believe a word of it, just walked away. And a turn of events happened in his life. And do you know what came up in his mind in that event? Yeah, those, that's exactly right. Those verses came back. The Lord's word came back. And it was used in his life to cause him to draw back to God. Now, that was years later. So I don't think any of those children's workers, they might have heard about it later on. But they, at the time, they just thought, yeah, I poured all this effort in this kid, and he walks off. Was it worth it? I would urge you on the testimony of Manasseh. It's worth it. Whatever problems you're having, however difficult that kid is, keep working at it because you don't know what God will do with that. And then lastly, do you know someone who's walked away from the Lord? Don't give up on them. Keep praying. Keep doing whatever you can to reach out to them. Big deal if they've rebuked you or they don't want to hear about it. Be in their life as long as you can. Be their friend. Be there so that when their life does come crashing down, they can have someone to turn to. Manasseh was old. He was persistent in his sin. He was rebellious. This is not a guy who was walking on the, on the line wondering which way to go. This is a guy who was fully committed to the life of sin. And when life came crashing down and he realized those idols were just idols, he remembered what he learned when he was young. So keep praying for the ones who have walked away. And then lastly, 
I don't know what the sin is in your life that continually affects you. But in those moments where you wonder, why would God forgive me? Just look at Manasseh. Because why would God forgive Manasseh? Not because Manasseh deserved it, and not because Manasseh was certain to never do it again, and not because it was only Manasseh's first offense, and it wouldn't happen probably again. He forgave Manasseh because he's a God who forgives. And if you sin, he's a God who will forgive you every single time. Let that be hope to you. Let that be hope to you. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truth that you will forgive, that you are kind, you are gentle, that the thing that causes us to turn and repent, Lord, is not the ferocity of your judgments, but it is the kindness you show us. Thank you, Father, for the Son who died on the cross to pay for our sins. Lord, I pray that this week we would have special attention in our mind to those who have walked away that we would seek to pray for them as often as we can. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in ministry with young children or even with adults, that if it seems like nothing's happening, Father, we would be faithful to declare your word to each other, that one day that word could be used in the hands of your spirit to convict that person and draw them back to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.